Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 52? We're going to pick up in verse 13. Hmm. Isaiah 52, we're going to pick up in verse 13. Now, as y'all know, I know I, since I was out last week, let me catch up. We're preaching through the statements in the Apostles' Creed. We read this, we confess this every Sunday. What in the world does it mean? Why is it so important? Why has it been one of the three pillars of the church from the beginning alongside the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer? It takes the entirety of the Bible and it summarizes it in short statements. And these statements are the linchpin of everything that we as Christians believe. We have talked about God's caring fatherly providence, how He loves and cares for us. We've talked about God's powerful act of creation. We have talked about Jesus' incarnation. Him taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Today, we talk about Jesus Christ and His being judged by Pilate about His death, His burial, His resurrection, and the infamous line, His descent into hell. So let's summarize that in our sermon in a sentence. I believe in Christ's sufferings. I believe in Christ's sufferings. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, as we jump into your word and we listen to you speak to us by your spirit, this is the most solemn moment, the most solemn scripture of scriptures. Would you help us to see and hear Christ crucified? Would you help us, Heavenly Father, to understand the great significance of this truth that it may be rightly applied to our life? Father God, we ask your blessing upon the reading and preaching of your word. And we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. We're going to read from 52 to the end of 53. We're going to particularly focus on Isaiah 53.10. So hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised not, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shear silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They have made his grave with the, with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins, the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word this morning. This servant song is one of many between Isaiah 40 through 66. Now Isaiah 40 through 66 depicts a second exodus, a second redemption far greater than the watery rescue from the land of Egypt. Because Isaiah understands something very keen. We are still in bondage. Bondage to sin. Isaiah foretells a day when Israel will be scattered throughout Babylon because of their idolatry. And God will bring them back in. And though Israel may not commit idolatry again, sin will cling to them as shackles around their wrist. And I think that's an experience all of us here know. How many times has God saved us by the skin of our teeth? And we might stop sinning the way we used to, but instead of stop sinning, we'll just find other ways to sin. That's like changing, getting, going from black shackles to brown shackles. 
It's the same thing. We're just changing color. Isaiah pictures this new exodus, a final deliverance from the bondage of sin by a new servant, by Jesus Christ. And this song stands apart for its clarity in Christ's vicarious suffering, his suffering for someone else, his atonement, his death. So what does Isaiah's prophecy teach us about Christ? What has the arm of the Lord revealed about him? Let me give you three things. One, Christ was bruised for us. Christ was bruised for us. Verse 10, Isaiah says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to pulverize him, to bruise him. Let me tell you something about being crushed. You know, we think of crushing the same way we think of old school Mario. The rock would land on Mario and Mario's dead. But when someone is crushed, it's not instantaneous. There's often great excruciating pain before they finally die. And when Isaiah talks about Christ being crushed, him being bruised, Notice what he points to in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, Christ was crushed. He experienced great moments of agony, of spiritual agony, of hellish torments. So much so that Isaiah would define him as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We realize Christ did not face the cross with a cold, stoic indifference. Christ faced the cross with the totality and depth of sinless emotion. The anguish of what Adam should have felt after he plucked the fruit is what Christ felt as he faced the cross. But he felt it to the infinite degree. See, Jesus took our sin upon himself. He knew there was no escape, there was no rescue, there was no savior, there was no salvation for him. The wrath of God shook him to his soul. In anguish and torment, Jesus spent the entirety of his life under the long shadow of the cross. You hear it in Isaiah 12, verse 50, when Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. A baptism to be deluged, to be suffocated under God's wrath. The wrath that flooded Noah's generation. The wrath that crushed Pharaoh under the Red Sea. This is what Jesus is looking back to. Can you imagine for a moment, you're an Egyptian. 
You're riding through the walls of water that has been held up by grace. And all of a sudden, those waters come hammering down upon you. Can you imagine the panic and the terror that would overtake them? Can you imagine being one of those in Noah's generation as the ark is closed up and the waters rage and the torrents pull you under? Can you imagine the fear that would overtake you in those final moments? This is only a picture of the anguish that Christ experienced in his soul. Can you hear it in Gethsemane? Can you hear it in his trembling voice when he says, not once, not twice, but three times, if you will. This is not some divinely choreographed moment to teach us a lesson about prayer. This is the spiritual anguish of Christ's soul. And notice how small these words are. If you will. When someone is being crushed, when they're gasping for air, they can't preach a sermon. He is getting out all the words he possibly can as his humanity is crushed beneath the shadow of the cross. Can you hear it at Golgotha? The tortured cries of Christ are not from the whips, the nails, the hammer, nor the spear. It's a cry of absence. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God's goodness shines to some degree on everything. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. But in this moment... As the sin of God's people are laid upon Christ, he only experienced darkness, absence. The sun, moon, and stars are snuffed out. The darkness within that sealed tomb does not compare to the darkness Christ experienced in his soul. And for what reason does he experience these things? It's for us. The Lord laid upon him the iniquities of us all. That is the source of his spiritual anguish and his hellish torments. You could say that Christ went through hell for us. He was bruised for us. When Isaiah goes on, he was bruised and he was battered. For us. Isaiah says it was the will of the Lord to crush him as a sin offering. Twice daily for 1,500 years, they were doing morning and an evening sacrifice. And these served as a picture of Christ. They would lay their hands on the lamb and impute their sins to it. They would slaughter it. They would tear it limb from limb they would lay it upon the hot fires of the altar. All of these picture the physicality 
that Christ would have to endure twice daily for 1,500 years, and yet these are only a faint picture. And for what reason? Why is he subject to such torment? It's not for his sin. Isaiah says in verse 52, He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Sinners ain't exalted. John chapter 9, blind man says, We know God doesn't listen to sinners. But this one is high and lifted up. He's a lamb of God. He's the sinless servant to whom God is well pleased. But Isaiah says he was beaten, he was battered, he was bloodied for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was cut off from the sins, for the sins of his people, buried outside the camp with the refuse and the dung and the garbage. Do you see the trend? He was battered for us. He was beaten for us. He was bloodied for us. As Christ stood before Pilate, the sinless son was condemned and oppressed by an unjust judge for us. The crowd despised Christ and deemed him insignificant, unworthy of defense. Wait a minute. That's us. We're lumps of clay. We are not significant. We are sinners. We are unworthy of defense. But he assumed our position. Though Christ knew his worth, he silently, as a lamb before its shears, submitted to the whips, the nails, the wounds, and the woes, that by his chastisements, by his stripes, by the very lashes upon his back, we may have peace. As Christ stood at the feet of Golgotha, bearing the beams of his own cross, he stared in dread at the moment to which all the Old Testament prophesied. He went where Adam ate the fruit of the vine, Christ drank sour wine. Where Adam walked naked and unashamed, Christ hung on that cross butt naked as the day he was born, full of shame. Where Adam listened with wonder to the lies of Satan, Christ was forced to listen to the lies of scoffers with utter torment. Adam was given much grace after he plucked the fruit of that tree. Christ died in utter torment to pay the debt. And yet I, I preach this and I say this and I know even in this room we, we live often unashamed of blatant sin in our lives and yet Christ was battered for us. We stare at childlike wonder with all the temptations and the allurements of Satan. And yet it was Christ that was battered for us. We harbor sin in our hearts despite the mercy of God. And yet it was Christ that was battered for us. He was bruised. He was battered. And lastly, Christ was buried 
for us. Herein lies the creed's most infamous line, that he descended into hell. This does not mean that Christ went to a place of torment with devils and demons. This simply means that Christ was held under the power of death for three days. As he says in Matthew 12, 50. As Jonah spent three days and three nights in the fish, so the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Down into the earth he descended, but he saw no corruption. As Archibald Alexander says, he was died, he was buried, and he was dead dead. He was really dead. Having been bruised and battered for us, the tomb, the burial, is evidence that Christ tasted death for us. That the penalty was paid for us. That the wrath was satisfied for us. Christ has suffered. Christ has atoned. Could there be a sweeter statement to the ears of a sinful people? Could there be a more blessed fountain opened up from his side? From this fountain comes a wellspring of life, but what does this mean for us? What does this confession, this creed mean for us? It means on the one hand that Christians can enjoy peace with God. Let me say in no uncertain terms, every one of us in this room has a debt to pay. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Be it big sins, little sins, it doesn't matter. You know what the worst feeling is to me? When you have to talk to somebody when you owe them money. It kind of hangs as a cloud over our heads. You can't have peace with them. It's almost like friendship. If you ask your neighbor if you can borrow an air condition, there's a great amount of grace shown right there. But when they charge you for it, it changes the entire tenure of the relationship. Too often we think our crow is the blackest. And we look at other people and we say, well, I'm not as bad as him. Or we say, well, it'll be okay. It'll all balance out in the end. That changes the tenure of the relationship we have with God. What we see is that there was a man who once died. He gets to heaven. He's got to take an entrance exam. He says, tell us all the good things you've done. He's taken the test. He gets the grade back. He made a five. A five. And the man says, how in the world does anybody get in this place? And the angel answered him very clearly. You let Jesus take the test. There is no room for comparison today. None of our crows are as black as his. There is no room for thinking it'll balance out. This servant was high, lifted up, and exalted. Can we add anything to that work? Petrus Dantheus says, The greatest perfection a man can obtain in this life consists in a confession 
of his imperfections. Christ was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He was battered, he was bruised, he was buried for our sins. Therefore, he gives us his righteousness. He is the sin offering. We have peace with God. He receives lashes and stripes. We are at peace with God. He is numbered with the transgressors. We have peace with God. We call this atonement. At one mint. Because of the death of Christ, we are at one with God. We have peace with God. And therefore, when God looks at me, when God looks at you, God sees His Son. I spent a lot of time thinking on 1 Kings chapter 14. God looks at David. David the murderer. David the adulterer. God looks at us. The liar. The cheater. The scumbag. And when he looks at David, he says, My servant who kept all my commandments followed me with his whole heart, doing only what is right in my eyes. How in the world can God say that about David? How in the world can God say that about us? When God looked at imperfect David, God saw the perfect righteousness of His Son. As surely as He atone for the sins of David, there is hope for you. He laid upon him the iniquity of us all. No more do we have to live in that servile fear that I've got to do enough to make God happy. Christ has already done that. No more do we need to live our lives seeking the vain approval of other men. Why do we need their approval? We have peace with God. No more does our life have to be a jumping through the hoops. We have peace with God. As surely as Christ was judged guilty by Pilate, so surely are all of those who believe in Him judged righteous by God. We have peace with God. On the other hand, we have peace with God. We present our lives to God. Isaiah says, The will of the Lord shall prosper by His hand. Let's think of church attendance. We don't come to church so Jesus will save us. We've been saved, therefore we come to church. We give our lives as an offering for thanks. The will of the Lord will prosper. Christ did not endure agony for our sins that we could enjoy an abundance of sin. Christ did not die for sin that we may live in sin. Christ did not lie in the grave that we should lie in sin. Christ died for sin that sin may die in us. As Paul says elsewhere, we know our old self was crucified with Him 
in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Christ's death exists that we may be holy. Now I want to be very honest for a moment, church. How many of us here wrestle with the same sins we wrestled with last week? How many of us look at the sins of our children, our grandchildren, our friends, and we say, there is no hope for them? Well, guess what? The bruising, the battering, the burial of Christ ensures us the same thing will happen to our sin. That what is impossible with man is possible with God. How does it become possible in our lives? Each and every day we must apply ourselves to Jesus Christ. We must find Jesus where He is, in His Word, in His worship, and with His people. That we must live our lives in the shadow of that cross. Where our thoughts, are, the meditations of our hearts must revolve around His death, that we may better count the cost. Let us ask daily, Jesus' blood bought my holiness. Can I squander it on my sin? My Savior loved me so dearly. Can I love sin more? Let each of us count his agonies. Dwell upon them. Be transformed by them that by thinking on the death of Christ, we may put to death sin. And so I end you with a poem with that very idea in mind. It's from George Herbert. It says thus, O my chief good, how shall I measure out thy blood? How shall I recount what thee befell in each grief tale? Shall I thy woes number according to thy foes? Or since one star showed thy first breath, shall every star show thy death? Or shall each leaf which falls in autumn score a grief? Or cannot leaves but fruit be the sign of the true vine? Then let each hour of my whole life this one grief devour, that thy distress through all may run and be my son. I'll rather let my several sins their sorrows get, that as each beast his cure does know, each sin may sow. Since blood is fittest, Lord, to write thy sorrows in and thy bloody fight, my heart has store. Write it there, wherein one box does lie both sin and ink, that when sin spies so many foes, thy whips, thy nails, thy wounds, thy woes, all come to lodge there, sin may say, there is no room for me here, and may fly away. 
sin being gone, O Lord, fill this place and keep possession with thy grace. Lest sin take courage and return and all the writings blot or burn. This statement delivered up to Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The picture that we have of Christ's sufferings. It is the only way that fallen man can have peace with God. Yes. But it is that very thought. Meditated. Prayed. Lived through our lives. That we begin to enjoy the salvation so richly paid for us. So let us live out a confession of Christ's death by putting to death our sin. Now let us pray.